All right. We are studying the fruit of the Spirit, and the reason is the fruit of the Spirit is very important because Jesus said, you'll know a man by his fruit. You'll see where his root is. You'll know what his commitments are. You'll know who his Lord is by just seeing how he lives his life. And I guess the question would be, uh, for those of us who are following Christ uh, self-consciously, would those around us see anything about our lives that would make them want to ask what's going on with us and why we live and make decisions the way that we do? But our lives are supposed to be that way. They're supposed to be a contrast to that which is around us. They're supposed to arrest people's attention, not because we're promoting ourselves, not because we're proudly displaying our religiosity, but just simply because we live a quiet, godly life, following another path and hearing another drummer. And that's the kind of life that causes people to say, well, what is going on in that life? That's the reason for the importance of the fruit of the Spirit. So we've seen that the life of Jesus Christ is the life of receiving His gift of Jesus Christ on the cross for us and the perfect life of Jesus Christ lived on our account so that we have a perfect record before God. But it's more than that. It's also opening up our lives to the life of the Spirit, asking God to come in and take over our lives. And so we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit. We come to the eighth one today. And, of course, we never said these uh, these fruit are exhaustive of the Spirit. I mean, because the life of the Spirit is simply Christ-likeness. And you, there are many ways you could describe Christ. But the ones that are here are love, joy, peace. This is verse 22 of chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And today we want to look at gentleness. And the reason is the Christian man is a gentle man. The Christian man is a gentle man. We all are inclined not to be gentle. We're all inclined to want to get our way in the easiest way possible and sometimes the most violent way possible. And you see this natural inclination in the early pages of the Bible when King Solomon the Great, who had enjoyed the greatest extent of the kingdom of Israel under his reign dies at the end of chapter 11, 1 Kings, and now his son is going to take over. His name is Rehoboam. And the people come to Rehoboam, who's a young man, and they say, you know, you can win all the hearts of the people if you'll just lower the taxes, (laughs) if you'll just lighten the burden, if you'll just be kind to the people and gentle with the people. So he says, let me think about it. So he goes and talks to the older men, the ones who had been advisors to Solomon, men with wisdom, men with gray hair. And they all say, Rehoboam, if you're a smart man, you'll do exactly what these people are asking you to do. You can win their favor. You can be ruling over all the people. Just why don't you do what they say? Rehoboam says, thank you. Let me think about it. So then Rehoboam goes to all these young buddies, the young bucks, and he says, well, what do you think about this advice I've gotten from the people to lighten the load and, and so on? They say, no, don't do that, Rehoboam. Look, you're the king, and what you need to tell them is that your little finger is thicker than your father's waist. And you tell them that if he whipped them with whips, you're going to whip them with scorpions. And you just tell them, who, you show them who's boss. Rehoboam, unfortunately, takes the advice of his young friends and goes out and makes that announcement to the people. That was the beginning of the split kingdom. That's where we got the northern kingdom with the ten tribes. Jeroboam took those, and Rehoboam only had Judah and Benjamin in the south. And that's what split Israel was, lack of gentleness. It's amazing. And in my own generation, uh, I see over and over again men who have split families over lack of gentleness. People who have split marriages over lack of gentleness. I've seen people split churches over lack of gentleness. I've seen people split cities and nations in my lifetime over lack of gentleness. It's amazing how important gentleness is. And when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, who is our King, He's the King who rules over the entire cosmos. You say, well, shoot, how did He do that? He must be a mighty victor. Well, He is. But look how He conquered. He conquered with deeds of love and gentleness and mercy. There's this wonderful description of him in Matthew chapter 12 where he heals people. He shows his gentleness. He's going to rule and reign by helping poor people. 
He's going to rule and reign by helping sick people. And he just heals everybody and he cares for the poor. And then Matthew says this was to fulfill the scriptures. And he cites Isaiah 42, the suffering servant. And you remember this line? The smoking or the bruised reed he will not break and the smoking flax he will not snuff out. Think about that. A bruised reed he wouldn't break and a smoldering wick he wouldn't snuff it out. That which is very fragile, that which is already wounded, he wouldn't crush it. He wouldn't destroy it. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way he rules. He's very gentle and he doesn't, he's not a bull in a china shop. And some of you had to learn, some of you who are married, had to learn the hard way with your wife. Gentleness counts, <laughs> doesn't it? Your wife wants you to be gentle. I mean, just take your sex life. You thought it was going to be great. Grab her, you know, for all she's worth. Honey, try gentleness, you know. Now, some of you have these romp and stomp them wives. I mean, God bless you, you know, it's fine. But most people uh, have relationships with women who like to be treated gently. They want you to be the leader. They want you to be strong. They want you to protect her. They, she wants you to fight everybody else on her behalf. But she doesn't want you to fight her. So gentleness is of the very nature of the Lord Jesus Christ because we're his bride. And just look how he dealt with us. It's absolutely phenomenal. And if we're walking in his steps, we must be both as strong as he calls us to be. We must be gentle. So it's really gentle strength is what it's all about. Now look at the definition that Webster gives us, uh, or roughly what Webster gives us. Gentleness is kindness, amiability, mildness of manners or disposition. How are you doing so far? Not being harsh, stern, or violent. Here's the Sandy Wilson definition. Gentleness is using the least measure of force to accomplish godly objectives. So accomplish godly ends and purposes. Use the least measure of force that's necessary. You know, Solomon said, this was Rehoboam's daddy, Solomon was wise until he got to the end of his life and got mixed up with all these hundreds of women that led him astray. But Solomon put it this way. He says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And every one of you has experienced that. When God just turned the light bulb on in a moment of heat and you realize, you know what? I'm just going to play it cool on this one. I'm just going to be gentle. I'm going to be kind. And it was amazing the results he got. And you will continue to be amazed that a gentle answer turns away wrath. So our task is to be gentle. If you look, for example, I've listed here Matthew 21.5. What is that? That's the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. Jesus comes in to claim Jerusalem as his city. He's the king. How does he come in? On a white horse like a warrior? No. Comes in on a donkey. A weak little donkey. And we're told he came in gently. Gentle and humble. Riding on a donkey. That's the way that we're to come into life. We come in knowing what our dominions are that we're supposed to be making decisions in. We know where we're supposed to be leading. We know what we're supposed to be doing. But we come in riding on a donkey. We come in gently into our responsibilities. And then you could look at, at the end of Galatians. Turn uh, Well, look on that same page, page 1899. And look at verse 1. We'll study this uh, in a couple of weeks. But Paul says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin... You who are spiritual should restore him how? Gently. Restore him gently. So you don't say, you know, you're a terrible sinner. You need to repent. You know what I'm saying? Look, we all are sinners. We all fall into trouble. God has a plan for you. He'll lift you out of this. We're going to be right with you. You're fine. We love you to death. Come on now. Let's get, let's get back in line with the Lord. There's a difference in those two approaches. There's this approach and there's this approach. And the approach of Jesus is one of gentleness. And then look at the rest of that verse. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So be careful. If you're not gentle, you're going to end up getting into trouble yourself. And it's the self-righteous, harsh leaders who end up getting into the most trouble themselves. So gentleness is the order of the day. The Christian man is a gentle man. So if you're a boss and people say about you, you know, he's really smart. Boy, he makes a lot of money in this business, but boy, he's hell to work for. If people are saying about that, saying that about you, there needs to be a real turn in the road in your life. It's just that simple. That cannot be 
have the way people see you if you plan to be a Christian. It's just not appropriate. You can't be known as a man who rules people harshly and lords it over people like the Gentiles. That is not the way the Christian leads, not just in church, not just in family, but everywhere. And so we, there's a new way of leadership and a new way of life that's being set out before us here. This is the life of the Spirit. This is the Spirit-filled man. And I just ask you, if you're wondering, well, would this really work? Check the pages of Acts and see if it works. Uh, the Christian man is a gentle man. Now, secondly, notice that a gentle man is a strong man. Not a straw, S-T-R-A-W, but a strong, S-T-R-O-N-G. He's a strong man. So gentleness is not passivity. He leads. A meek man leads. Numbers 12.3 says that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Of course, it's kind of been interesting to me that Moses wrote that. <laughs> I haven't figured that part out yet. But, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> he was a meek man. But you notice that meekness doesn't mean weakness. There's a, there's a song, uh, uh, there's a Christmas song that talks about Jesus being meek and mild. Gentlemen, Jesus was meek, but he was definitely not mild. Meekness is not mildness. It's not weakness. It's not passivity. It is getting up and lead and right, leading. And right after that text where we're told about the character of Moses, right after that he confronts the sins of Israel. Now when he confronts the sins of Israel, he confronts them meekly. He goes before the Lord and says, what in the heck am I going to do? These people are raging against you and against me. They're rebelling. What are we going to do? And, and he goes and pleads before the Lord. He realizes he doesn't have the strength in himself. But by the Lord, he has the strength that he needs to lead. And then he comes out and leads and he makes decisions and he puts his life on the line. He leads. So you'll find that the Lord Jesus Christ leads. Moses leads. Paul leads. And so you must lead too. It's the way in which we lead that is controlled by the Spirit. Then notice secondly that the gentleman opposes evil. We saw in the, in the marching into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday that Jesus was riding on a donkey, gentle and riding on a donkey. But then just a few verses later, in verses 12 13, what do you find him doing? Turning over the tables in the temple. He had a few things to say. He was angry. A meek man gets angry, but it's controlled anger. It's focused anger. It's intentional anger. It's godly anger. And Jesus got angry in the temple because instead of using the place of prayer for prayer, they were using it for business and for profit. And he said, you made this a, a, a den of thieves and robbers. When the Lord said, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And look what you've done to it. Look what you've done to the church. You made it a place of profit. You made it a place of entertainment. And the Lord expresses his anger about that. A meek man does that. So a meek man is not only not passive, he's not apathetic. He has passions. He gets engaged in things. His viscera get going. They're under control for a purpose. Because he's not the Lord of life. The Lord Jesus is the Lord of life. And we're his servants. But on his behalf, we exercise uh, our passions. We oppose evil. And so a man who looks at, at this world and sees nothing wrong with it is not a gentle man. A man who looks at the church of Jesus Christ and sees nothing wrong with it is not a gentle man. Not the way the Bible describes it. A gentle man is a man who has the heart of Christ. He's full of the Spirit. And the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit takes great offense at all evil beginning with the evil in our own hearts. So a gentle man is a man who often is deeply troubled because of what he sees in the world. He just simply doesn't exercise human violence as his reaction to the evil in the world. Notice, thirdly, that a gentle man will rebuke his friends when it's necessary. You find with the Apostle Paul that he says, in meekness and gentleness I write to you in 2 Corinthians 10. And then what does he do? He takes them on. <laughs> All their heresies. I mean, look at Galatians. He says, if someone comes to you with a message other than the one I gave you, may go to hell. Oh, that, whoo, okay. There's a gentle man. Why? He will confront his friends. And then in chapter 2 of Galatians, this very book we're studying, what does Paul do? He confronts Peter. 
not only his friend, but a fellow apostle. This man's got incredible courage. So gentleness is not cowardice. So you can be a warrior and be a gentle man. As a matter of fact, if you're a Christian warrior, you must be a gentle man. So gentle men sometimes fight. But it's under regulated, controlled, God-ordained purposes. It's in a framework of advancing the kingdom of God and of being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a gentleman is. So he uses the least amount of force to accomplish the godly objectives that have been given him. The Christian man is a gentleman. The gentleman is a strong man. But guys, I mean, the most difficult thing about gentleness is that it is founded upon the most difficult and the rarest of Christian virtues. Gentleness flows out of something else. And it's the something else that makes this so difficult. And this is probably the main point I'd, I'd like for us to consider this morning. And that is that the gentle man is a humble man. Gentleness actually comes from humility. Now before we look at this section, I, I want to give a disclaimer. Uh, some years ago, uh, when I was at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, I preached a sermon. It was in the course of one of the books we were studying. I preached a sermon on humility. <laughs> one of our very honest deacons came up to me afterwards and said, Pastor, that was, that was really a fine sermon, especially considering the fact that that's not your long suit. <laughs> so <laughs> that was uh, 20 years ago. Obviously, I remember it because it rang true with me. I mean, how do you preach about something that you don't do very well? I don't know. Um, some of you here are preachers, and I guess we have to answer for that. I guess the, the way to start is with a disclaimer. that This is something that, that I struggle with too. But I want us to notice in the Scriptures how these two are, are almost always tied together. That you're not going to really get the gentleness of the Spirit without the humility of the Spirit. If you'll look, for example, at the Greek words, I've printed them here in, in sort of English uh, letters, proutes. You can put a dash over the E if that helps you remember. Proutes is, is the word that's here in Galatians 5. And it's a word that means gentleness. Or in the KJV, it's translated meekness. That's a legitimate translation. It also could be translated humility. So the, the very word for gentleness can also be used for humility. But there's another word that's uh, used in the Scriptures in the New Testament. Uh, tapenos, or tapenos. Tapenos, uh, which means humility, or means humble and lowly, downcast and timid. And what you'll find are there, there are these places where these two things are combined. And the first one you find in Matthew 11. Here's that famous text where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble tapenas in heart and you will find rest for your soul. So he's saying to us, we find rest in him. We find peace in him. We find even that the yoke of his law is easy. It fits us because he himself is gentle and lowly. He's gentle that comes out of his own humility. And in Matthew's gospel in particular, you'll find these concepts of gentleness and humility uh, repeated more than in any other gospel. Matthew seems to make a point of this because he's showing how Jesus is that Old Testament figure that's been prefigured in Isaiah with the suffering servant. And he's showing the gentleness and humility of the Lord Jesus Christ to say he's the real thing. And of course what Paul is saying is if we're the real thing, we too will display that same gentleness and lowliness. Now, you'll find this also in Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians 10, where he says, In the meekness and lowliness of Christ I write to you. So he's saying, I'm coming to you in the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is one of gentleness and humility. And that's the only way we can come to each other. And those of you who are, uh, from time to time, you're working with various brothers or sisters who who fall into sin or need help, or even your own children that you're correcting. You know, it would help a whole lot if your children knew that you knew that you're not perfect. It would help a whole lot 
if maybe you started your correction, your little moment of correction by saying, you know what, let me, let me just make a comment before we get into this. You're a whole lot better than I was when I was your age. And for most of you, that's true because that is the way it's supposed to work. And if your kids, kids are not ahead of where you were, something's gone wrong here. So you want your kids to be ahead of you, but you need to remind them. And you need to say something like, you know what, to be honest with you, I got in a lot more trouble than you've ever gotten into, and I'm very sorry about it. Or I've done a lot worse things than you've even thought of, and I'm very sad about that. But now we've got to deal with this thing in your life. It would help a whole lot if we would come in the meekness and the gentleness, the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing about Jesus, he was a man who was humble. But contrary to what Winston Churchill said about one of his friends, Jesus had nothing to be humble about except that he took on our flesh and he was humiliated by being in our flesh. But in his own nature, there was, there was no sin. And yet he was humble. Amazing thing. So a gentle man will have to be a humble man. And you see where this humility comes from. Notice how Spurgeon puts it. Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. It is no humility for a man to think less of himself than he ought. So humility is not running yourself down. Humility is not saying something negative about yourself that's not true. Look what humility is. I think Sinclair Ferguson put it well in his, in his uh, lesson, his commentary on Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where it says, blessed are the meek. It's the same word, prates. Blessed are the prates, for they shall inherit the earth. And, and Ferguson says, humility is being who we are in the presence of God, nothing more and nothing less. So get that. Meekness or humility is simply seeing yourself as you actually are. Not anything more, but not anything less. Wonderful definition of humility. Now, how do we attain this? And I'd like to suggest two major categories of how men like myself who are naturally proud can aspire to a humble life. And I think there are two categories. The first one is this. The humble man thinks carefully. You've got to watch your thoughts. You've got to watch how, what you roll over in your mind. Usually what we roll over in our mind are our greatest events ever in our history, both of them. And we keep playing those things over and over. You know, that, that goal that, that I scored to win a high school basketball game, I still remember. I mean, out of all the games I ever played or ever attended, boy, I sure remember that goal. I can tell you who drove down the court, who passed it, and you know what the score was. And, man, that was a roll that thing over my mind. Or I can roll some other things over my mind. The first thing is probably not going to get me anywhere except to be proud. The second thing in my mind will lead to humility and then gentleness. And here's what it is. First of all, uh, you've got to remember that God is awesome. You've got to get your thoughts on the Lord. Amy Carmichael said, those who think too much of themselves don't think enough. That's the problem. When we think too much of ourselves, we're not thinking very much. And we begin with God. The humble man has great thoughts about God. He thinks about Him all the time. A truly humble man, you'll find, always is focused on the greatness of the Lord. How did Isaiah get his humility? He went into the temple to pray. And there he saw the Lord Adonai high and lifted up. He saw the seraphs singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the doorposts and the thresholds shook. Now there's the beginning of humility. You realize in the presence of the Lord that you're a little peanut. You're on a little tiny planet. And you're a little speck of dust. And he can blow you away with the breath of his mouth in just a moment. You're a nothing in that sense. Compared to infinite glory, we're nothings. We're, we're His creatures. And He can dispose of us completely as He will. And everything in our lives has been by His providence. He rules over us completely. We are His subjects. We are His servants. And we see ourselves as we are in the light of God. So we must learn to think great thoughts about God. You find the same thing with John in the first chapter of Revelation. What made John a humble man? He had a view of Jesus Christ and knocked him on his keister. He fell as though dead when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ as he is, the resurrected and exalted Christ as he is right now. When John had a vision of him, it dang near killed him. He got a vision of Jesus Christ. 
And, of course, John tells us in chapter 12, that's what Isaiah got. It was a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he saw when he saw him high and lifted up. That's what we all need to remember who's lost, to remember who is truly great. And there's only one who is truly great and truly good, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So the true way to be humble, see what, and by the way, this is not Philip S. Brooks, it's Phillips Brooks. The true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. It's when you know His greatness that we understand our smallness. Now, we don't end there. And thank God we don't end there because it's not just that He's great and we're small and that He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable and we're very changeable and very finite. But there's a, there's a love story that goes on here. But before we get to that, we have to come to the second major thought in our minds and that is that I am a wretched sinner. I'm not only a creature... I'm a wretched sinner. So God is awesome. I'm a creature. God is holy. I'm a wretched sinner. And you see this once again with Isaiah too. When Isaiah has a vision of the Lord, he, he experiences what John Calvin describes here. When Calvin says, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. This is exactly what Isaiah did. He had a vision of God. And then what were the first words out of his mouth? Woe to me. Now, if you'll look back in chapter 5 of Isaiah, you'll see he was woeing everybody else. Woe to those who take advantage of the poor. Woe to those who are drunkards. Woe to those who are just greedy. Woe, woe, woe to all the sins of Israel. But when he saw God as he is, high and lifted up, when he saw the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, there was only one sinner he was aware of, and that was himself, and he pronounced a curse upon himself. Woe is me. I am undone, he says. Or literally, I'm falling apart at the seams. Why? Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he said, I do dwell among a people of unclean lips. So not only am I a wretched sinner, i got a bunch of wretched sinner friends. And I've seen the Lord. He was very aware of his own sin. And the humble man is keenly aware that he is his biggest problem. Your biggest problem is yourself and the sin in your own heart. And once that dawns on you, it regulates the way you look at every other fellow sinner. Woe is me. I am undone. So we are wretched sinners. Then thirdly, we are humbled when we think about this. I'm a saved sinner. Because after Isaiah said that, the Lord didn't say, well, good for you, Ike. I'm glad you finally got, got things straight here. You're a terrible, horrible, no good, ugly sinner. No, here's what happens. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What brings humility? Studying Paul's letter to Galatia. And you look at what he's done to save you. It wasn't because of your keenness of mind. It wasn't because of your largeness of heart. It wasn't because of your religious affections. It was, there was one reason. It was because he loved you. And he sent his son to die for you. And you say, why did he do that? I don't know. There is no explanation in you that gives reason for him to do this. Nothing. You were a rebel. I am a rebel by nature. We do not deserve this. There's no way you could possibly explain that he would come back for us after we had our one chance in the Garden of Eden and blew it. Our nature changed. Adam and Eve gave birth to a whole race of wicked people. What would God have to do with that? I have no idea why he had anything to do with it except to destroy it and do what he said he was going to do in the first place, which was kill us all. That's what he said he was going to do. Why he didn't, I do not know, except it's for his glory. Somehow, he magnifies the glory of his own grace by saving undeserving sinners like us. When that dawns upon us, we then deal with everybody else in a very different way. And when you find yourself in those moments of being harsh, 
unforgiving, unkind, ungentle. I'll tell you what the problem is. You're not thinking. You're not thinking about the greatness of God. You're not thinking about your own sin and unworthiness. And you're certainly not thinking about the love of God that with, through, who, through, through His own gentleness has saved you. That's how you got saved, was gentleness and humility of Christ. So what happens when we're losing our temper or we're being violent or unkind in some way, we have stopped thinking about reality. And we are very distorted in the way that we think about ourselves and our own entitlement. And I tell you, I, I just I see on TV more and more just people who are absolutely spoiled. Somehow their parents have taught them that they're the most important thing in the universe. And they believed it. And they act like it. They're entitled to anything they want whenever they want it. When they don't get it, they cry like babies and they scream and curse because they can't get what they want. And we're all tempted to do this. It's a picture of ourselves. We've been pampered. And we think that really what life is about is kind of getting through it with a smile on your face. And that's what it's about. Gentlemen, life is about honoring and glorifying and serving to the dead. The one who has saved us by his own blood. Notice how Eisenhower puts it when he, when he talks about the, the, the pride that can come to a general who's being bragged on all the time. Look what he said about humility. He said, humility must always be the portion of any man who receives a claim earned in the blood of his followers and the sacrifices of his friends. What good would it do for me, a general, to brag about D-Day? Did I storm the beaches of Normandy? All I did was say, let's go, let's go for it. That's all I did. I designed it. And I ruled over the men. I didn't, land, I didn't storm the beaches. So what would it be like for me to be proud of D-Day? That would be ridiculous. What would it be like for you to be proud of your moral attainment? It would be completely ridiculous. What did you do? Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what do you have that was not given to you? Then why do you act as though it wasn't given to you? That's right thinking that gets us down where we belong and brings the humility that then issues into gentleness. One time, Corey Tim Boom, you know, who, who wrote some uh, very uh, interesting books, and she, of course, you know her story in World War II. She was taken into captivity by the Germans, and she survived. Her, her big sister didn't survive the camps, but she did. And just a marvelous Christian woman who died some years ago, and Corey Tin Boom, later in her life, after she had published and she became a worldwide Christian figure, uh, someone said to her, so, uh, Miss Corey, how do, you, how do you keep your humility? And she said, well, you know, she said, it, it's like when Jesus came in to Jerusalem. He came in on a donkey. And she said, the donkey's job was to hold up Jesus Christ. My job is to hold up Jesus Christ. She said, now let me ask you something about that donkey. When they came into Jerusalem and everybody was laying their garbs on the ground, waving palm branches and singing Hosanna, do you think the donkey thought for one moment that this was all about him? And she said, so it's easy. You think for one moment this is about you. Then you're acting like a, a really weird donkey. So I thought that was a good answer on her part. Let's, let's think straight. Let's get it right. Let's remember who we are. And then gentleness will tend to issue out of your life. So the, the first thing is you have to be very careful about what you think. Secondly, the humble man walks carefully. You know, Micah teaches us that we should love justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. That's what he wants, for us to walk humbly with our God. And really, if we walk with Him, we will walk humbly. It's almost a redundant thing to say walk humbly. You could just say walk with God. Because if you walk with Him, you're going to know His greatness. You're going to know your unworthiness. And you're going to know the something of the profundity of your salvation. But God says through Micah, walk humbly with your God. You must be very careful how you walk. And there are two things I'd like to say about this. One is, there has to be an intentional renunciation of our pride. The humble man 
renounces his pride. We all are proud by nature. And there's a story of two Texans. Uh, sorry for those of you from Texas, but we love to pick on you. Two Texans and, you know, how they were boasting about the size of their ranch. And one of them said to the other, well, so what's the name of your ranch? He said, well, my ranch is the rocking R-A-B-C flying W circle J rolling K silver spur staple four rainbows in ranch. And the other man says, wow, that's really impressive. He said, so how many head of cattle do you run on that ranch? He said, well, not too many because they all die when I try to brand them. Uh, <laughs> all of us tend to do that. Even folks in, in Memphis, I heard about a guy from Memphis who went duck hunting, and he was bragging about what a great duck hunter he was. And he was telling his friend with whom he had never been duck hunting before, he said, man, every time I go out, I just I knock him dead. I, mean, I come home, you know, up to the limit. I could go over the limit, but I don't. I just kill ducks. I'm just an expert duck hunter. So they're out there, you know, early in the morning. Here come a couple of ducks. And he goes, boom, boom, boom. And they just keep flying on by. He said, man, I want you to know, this is an absolute miracle. There are some flying dead ducks right there. That's pride. That's pride. And we all have to realize, you know, we've got it. We've got the disease. And it's a disease. And we got it at conception. And it's very difficult to root out. More difficult than hepatitis C. More difficult than cancer. More difficult than anything you've got is rooting out uh, pride. As T.S. Eliot said, most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. Think about that. If you look at that definition by Lewis, uh, uh, some of you read this uh, as I did years ago in Mere Christianity. It's just a classic paragraph. I think it would be worth our time to read it together. Let's look at what he says about this one vice. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Wow. Look at it. We don't see it in ourselves. It causes us to despise other people who have the same disease. And we rarely confess that we've even got it at all. Talk about a virulent disease. This one is. And even when we try to eradicate it, we end up back where we started. There's this wonderful story. Uh, some of you who maybe especially from the more dispensational background, remember the name Dr. H.A. Ironside, who is a, a professor and preacher. And Ironside one time, uh, living in Chicago, he said, you know, I really want to deal with my pride. And he went to one of his elder brothers, and he asked him for advice for how he could deal with his pride. And the elder said to him, well, he said, I think one thing you can do is put on a sandwich board the plan of salvation and walk the streets of Chicago for a day. And Dr. Ironside did it. He put on a sandwich board with a, with a gospel plan, and he walked throughout Chicago. And here's what he said happened to him when he got home. He took off the sandwich board and he said, I bet there's not another man in Chicago that would have done that. <laughs> because it's just humility is so tricky, isn't it? Uh, you know, as we quoted Ted Turner on here who, who says, you know, if, if, if I could only had a little humility, I'd be perfect. <laughs> That's the way we think. Listen, if you, if you need some help, just talk to your wife. <laughs> you know, if you ever have a bad case of pride, just call your wife and ask for a little help. She can help you out. My friend uh, Jim Baird, uh, who retired some years ago as pastor of First Presbyterian Jackson, Mississippi, he said one day he was going home after having preached a particularly good sermon, in his opinion. And he, things were kind of quiet in the car. It was just himself and his wife, Jane, in the car. And they're going home, and it was quiet. And he, he just said, honey, 
how many really great preachers do you think there are today? And she said, one less than you think. <laughs> Praise the Lord for wives. Uh, and I tell you what, we just continually need input like that. If the segues are not open to your life right now, for people to say those things to you, I, I really don't think you have a ghost of a chance. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, it's just, this is so hard. I mean, it's kind of like you got cancer and you don't want to go to the doctor. I mean, what, what's the possibility of getting healed? You're just not going to make it. So you've got you've to have your life open. You've got to be willing to strip down and let somebody investigate. And I, the only way I know to do that, as a proud man, the only way I know how to do that so I, I get some help every day is to ask people around me to speak up. Now, if you're a boss, it's very hard for the people around you to do that. It's very hard. They're, every time they do that, they're taking their life in their own hands. They're taking their job in their own hands. And they may be taking their pay raise in their own hands. It's very difficult for them. And you need to think about that. If you've got people around you that report to you, it's very difficult for them to give you the honest truth. That's the reason that Churchill always had back-channel methods of getting information because people reporting to him wouldn't give him bad news. And he knew he couldn't win the war if he didn't get honest news. You're not going to win this war if you don't get the honest truth. And if you don't go after it, you're not going to get it because there are so many reasons why people aren't going to tell you that you're naked. You know, the emperor has no clothes. Well, the emperor didn't want to know, so the emperor walks around naked all the time. And that's what happens with us. You're going to have to create segues for people to come to you, and when they do come to you, get prepared right now to give them a big kiss and a thank you. Reward them for coming to you. That's the only way you're going to get the feedback that you need to fight this battle. So he, he, he walks very carefully by, first of all, renouncing his pride. And then secondly, we certainly should mention this. We imitate Christ. Christ is always set before us. Christ is our model. Christ is the gold standard. Christ is the measuring stick. And you don't measure yourself against some other poor slob who's just as proud as you are. You can always say, well, I'm not as bad as he is. You know, you can always do that. You always find somebody who, in your opinion, is prouder than you are. So where, where did that get you? Hey, we're all burning up in this house, but I haven't, he's more aflame than I am. I mean, you know, what's the point? So be sure that you always have Christ before you. And when you do, and you look into the, the Matthew's gospel, just take those verses that are listed there. You'll see there's just a whole stream of gentleness and humility that takes him right to the cross where he accomplishes the greatest accomplishment ever finished. When he said, it is finished, I have saved God's people, and he raises them up at the last day, what an accomplishment! All through humility, all through gentleness. And of course, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul's hymnic text, when he says that we must have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So we in Christ take up the same path that he took and that humility that was generating that is the humility we're praying for. And we, take, we ask Christ to come in, take over our life, and let us walk that same path. That's imitating Christ. Now, lastly, I know that uh, for proud men like us, it sounds like a pretty miserable life. <laughs> I mean, the Greeks thought this was humiliating to even talk about such things. Lowliness was not one of their virtues. <laughs> it's not one of the classic virtues. Lowliness was to be humiliated. You would never lower yourself in classical ethics, but you do in Christian ethics. And here's why. Here's why, gentlemen. Because we have a secret about lowliness. We have a secret about gentleness. We have a secret about humility. And it's this. The one who goes down comes roaring back up. The one who puts himself on the bottom ends up at the top. We're not stupid. We've not abandoned all self-interest. No. No. Just the opposite. Au contraire, I belong. 
We have our self-interest at heart because He has our self-interest at heart. We are denying ourselves now. But gentlemen, we are getting the universe in return. Look what we are told in Matthew 5. Jesus taught this, one of the first things out of His mouth in His public ministry. Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. Now, J. Paul Getty says the meek will inherit the earth, but not the mineral rights. J. Paul Getty was wrong. We get the mineral rights, the air rights, the water rights. We get the galaxy rights. We get the universe rights by being meek and following Jesus Christ. And this is what keeps us low is that we know where we're going, that we know the reward is infinitely beyond anything that our pride was seeking to grasp that the things our pride was seeking to grasp were mud pies compared to the enormous blessings that wait for those who walk with Jesus Christ. Peter puts it this way, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He doesn't stop there. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you in due time. In due time. We're not stupid. We're just patient. And we're waiting for the day of exaltation when we look just like Him. The one who is meek, the one who is humble, the one who is gentle now is gloriously ruling over the universe and He's got brothers that are waiting to come and join Him and they're going to look just like He does and they're going to rule just like He does. They're going to rule and reign with Him. That's the ticket. And that's what motivates us every day. The gentleness and kindness of Christ to give us what we we, were grasp, we weren't even grasping for that. We were grasping for something far less than that. And he comes and replaces what we were grasping for with something even greater. Well, of course we'll be gentle. Of course we'll be humble. We're just waiting. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, when you get stopped by a policeman. You know, you've been traveling 85 out here, you know, on I-40. And you see the blue lights and he pulls you over. Now, does he come over next to the car and say, you really made me so mad. I had to come out here. And he just fusses at you and whines at you. Know, he's just quiet, calm, humble, just writes you a ticket. I'm sorry, sir, I have to write this out for you. And so he's just really nice. Why? He's got all authority that he ever could want. He doesn't have to persuade you of anything. He doesn't have to whine or fuss or intimidate you. He just came over there in his uniform and just did his thing. Gentlemen, that's the way it is with someone who knows where they're going. You have to whine, fuss, be proud. You don't have to boast. You don't have to promote yourself. You don't have to advance yourself. Why would you do that? Silly. Just wait. You will be promoted. <laughs> You'll be advanced. You'll be glorified. You will be exalted over all the angels. Everybody's going to get the point. All you have to do is hang on. So why should you whine and fuss and try to promote yourself now? That's the whole point. And you'll see in the scriptures, we won't take time to look at this in detail, but in the, in the Hebrew, there's a, there's a word, and I'm sorry, I've tried to put this in English, and it's very difficult to do. That little A-N-A-W, it says the meek man. Put a little, um, something like a quotation mark, a single quotation mark before the A. That should be there. And it's pronounced Yanao. And that's called the meek man. That's what Moses was, Yanao. And you'll see in the scriptures in the Old Testament, there are a lot of things said about the Yanao. And you can see it in, in Psalm 25, 9. God teaches him. God guides him. The Yanao. Those who humble themselves like Moses, those who humble themselves like Jesus Christ, God is guiding them. He is leading them. He is teaching them. It's the Yanao who are able to listen to the Word of God and actually believe it and put it into practice. It's the one who has humbled himself, who has right thoughts about who God is and who we are. Now we can learn. And you can't learn until you get there. So with increasing humility comes greater teaching from the Lord. Jonathan Edwards said, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. It's true. The safest place to be is in the lowest place. Secondly, God sustains him. He says he provides for and sustains the humble in Psalm 147. So, yes, the humble work hard. Yes, the humble are responsible. Yes, the humble plan. Yes, the humble lead. But it is the Lord who provides for them and the humble know it. And they, tr they look to Him to be provided for. They're not trying to be the masters of their own souls. They're not trying to be the self-made self man. They know it's absolutely ridiculous to be a self-made man when you're a creature, a sinful creature, and a redeemed sinful creature. It's ridiculous. 
So the humble man looks to the Lord even amidst and through his hard work. And thirdly, God saves the humble man. As Peter says, God gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. But he opposes the proud. Gentlemen, I mean, the scary side of pride is not just that you're not going to learn, not going to be led, not going to be guided, not going to be grateful, not going to be influential for the kingdom. God is actually opposed to you. Yikes. That's what Peter says. But God saves the humble. And then lastly, as we have seen, God exalts the humble. And James quotes this as well. God lifts up the humble. He's not going to leave you in the dirt. Look what he did for Isaiah. After Isaiah saw who God was and who he was and what God had done for him, he said, here am I, send me. He went out and served him. And Isaiah was used greatly of the Lord. Think about Isaiah right now in the presence of the Lord. Do you think Isaiah was sad that he was a humble man? No, he just, reality dawned on him and he served the Lord. And then serving the Lord, he was rewarded by the Lord in the last day. The fruit of the Spirit is the result of living the life of God. And God is no man's debtor. He owes us nothing. He always rewards as he says he's going to reward. So gentlemen, really the life of gentleness is a life of Christ. It's a life of fruitfulness and effectiveness. It comes from humility of putting ourselves where we belong and loneliness following Christ. And it leads to a path of absolute glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us in Galatians and even this one word. And we pray that you would enable us to understand it and increasingly to put it into practice. And that we would do so by remembering how great you are and how wonderful your salvation is of us, concluding with glorious exaltation. Help us to wait for the day of glory rather than trying to be glorified in a broken world. And as we wait upon you, Lord, it is with eager expectation when you shall give to the meek of the earth the entire cosmos. We glorify you. We exalt you, even as we would humble ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.